Hello, Pivoters. Welcome to Pivoting Out of EDU, your podcast designed to provide you with the inspiration, confidence, and strategies for making a pivot away from campus-based positions in education toward other opportunities. Hosts, Drs. Jamie Hoffman and Tom Stutter pivoted out of campus-based positions and are loving it. Now they are giving back and supporting others doing the same. Welcome to Pivoting Out of EDU. We're really excited to be doing this unique crossover episode with Jill Creighton, who is the host of the NASPA Voices from the Field podcast. And I know I speak for Tom and myself saying that we're just super excited to do this collaboration because really the main reason we started our podcast was to just be a resource for folks who are thinking about leaving the profession to move towards something else. There are some Some folks we talk with that are desperately trying to leave student affairs, but there's also a fair amount that just want to leverage their skills in a different way. And I think it's just good to make sure that sort of both groups of folks are talking with each other so they know the opportunities. And Jill connected with us, acknowledging that there are a lot of folks looking to make transitions. So Jill, we're really excited both to just meet you and have you on our podcast, but also to be on your podcast and to be talking to our joint audiences. So thank you so much. Absolutely. And I think it's important for the Essay Voices listeners to understand we're really just acknowledging a part of our new reality today, which is that people are reevaluating their career paths, not just in our industry, but nationwide. So the great resignation is upon us. I know of several institutions that are facing new staffing challenges because they have had folks that are reevaluating what they want out of their careers. And that's okay for us to acknowledge. But I also want our Essay Voices listeners to hear that by no means are we trying to push you out of the field? We want you to be here. We want your time and your talents if this is the right space for you. But we also just want to live in the reality that that's not true for everyone right now, especially. So looking forward to the dialogue. Yeah. Uh, but Jamie and Tom, you both work in ed tech. And yes. so I'd love to know first, if you could tell us what is this enigma that is the phrase ed tech? Well, let me start that one because I'm in ed tech and Tom is in ed corporate. I don't know. I'll let Tom describe what he does and how he does it. But I wanted to just tack on to Jill, what you had, had mentioned about, you know, not encouraging people to leave the field. I think it's important to honor the fact that nowadays the field really should be defined more broadly because there are so many positions that are really adjacent to higher ed where we're all working to support similar outcomes. And in fact, there's many companies, ed tech companies, which I'll talk about briefly that, you know, they have a specialization in something that campuses just don't have the bandwidth, capacity, skills, et cetera, to develop that expertise. And so, you know, we're leveraging them. And it used to be that ed tech, we saw it as like vendors, right? When I'd go to like NASPA and, you know, ACPA, it was the vendor booths that were always trying to sell us something. But now, so, to, you know, to Simplicity, Maxian, OrgSync, Campus Labs, etc. But now there's just so many more opportunities from companies that have found ways to really develop a deep skill in, you know, and it may be a gap area for campuses. And they're, they're doing a great job. They have a great expertise in that. And so how I would define ed tech is 
is really that is is companies that have established themselves that focus on some form of technology that are supporting education in some capacity because of course there's K through 12 ed tech and there's higher ed ed tech and then there's certainly education and learning development which I'll pass over to Tom but I work in ed tech alongside universities helping to support online students. And there are just a fair amount now of companies. In fact, we have a blog that we shared and I've aggregated a list of higher ed tech companies and K through 12 ed tech companies that I can can share to have in the show notes as well. So Tom, your turn to share. <laughs> yeah, so I actually don't work in ed tech. I work in education in technology. So I work for a tech firm that is primarily a go-to-market platform that that we sell to help our accounts and our customers find their next customer. But I work in the education space within there. And so I think that's one unique. I think a lot of folks who are wanting to pivot or migrate from student affairs or higher education in general, the first thing that they think of is ed tech because there's a natural sort of connection there. But you know, my advice is always sort of think a little bit bigger than that. I do education. I run our customer onboarding and customer education efforts for our relatively large enterprise company. And of interest, I do a lot of the same things that I did when I worked in higher ed. When I was doing employee training, I taught StrengthsQuest and I taught MBTI, which were the exact same things I did for my undergraduate first year students when I was teaching and leading leadership programs. But then also the theoretical constructs that I operate from are the same. You know, learning is learning is learning. And if you have a knack for how people learn, if you've trained on that, if you have a degree in that, which is what we got in student affairs, right? It doesn't matter if you're doing that for 18-year-old college first-year students or if you're doing it for, you know, 35-year-old executive salespeople. People learn the same way or the theoretical foundation is still the same. And so I use a lot of what I learned in my master's and, and doctoral programs and on the job in student affairs to pivot into the world that I'm in now. It's amazing the seamlessness that I have felt in moving into an education space within a tech firm that doesn't work with higher education. What's the biggest difference in the environment and the culture in which you work now from where you were before? Ooh, well, for me, the biggest difference is there's a start time and a stop time. <laughs> it's not to say that I don't have things that happen in the evenings or, or on weekends. And I certainly, particularly in the middle of the pandemic, have, have had more of these sort of virtual meetings, which means that I, I have more meetings on my calendar, which means sometimes I go a little bit later, have to do work on the weekends. But I don't go to football games and I don't have to work student events at all hours of the day and, and night and weekend. That's one of the biggest cultural things is that I actually have a personal and a professional life that do feel separate, which I really appreciate. I'm not sure I ever felt that when I worked in higher ed. I loved what I did in student affairs, but the difference is now there is a contrast. There's a a line sort of in the sand. Um, I don't get 3 a.m. emergency phone calls or have to, you know, figure out staffing for a 8 p.m. event or a pancakes at midnight type event that we used to do when I worked in higher education. I feel like I've been on duty for several years in a row. I don't know what that's like. I'm very curious. <laughs> well, and and I would say like for me, my most frequent way of explaining the differences on the positive and negatives is that on the negative, I personally, I don't, 
well, I guess this is positive depending on what way you look at it, but I don't feel like I experienced the low of lows that I experienced when I was working in student affairs. And I did, to be transparent, my pivot really occurred when I had my first child. I left student affairs and moved to first adjunct and then full-time faculty. And that was really because... And I had applied for a promotion even when I was like nine months pregnant. And I was convinced that once I had a kid, I wasn't going to be like, quote unquote, those other women who changed. And and I was going to keep wanting to do everything I'd been doing. And I don't know that I did change, but the way in which I view time changed. And I suddenly was like, well, this is kind of stupid. I'm only going to see my kids for like, well, my kid at the time for like 30 minutes in the morning and an hour at night. And the nighttime is when she's like evil because she had colic and she really did scream at night. And that's when I sought to try for a flexible schedule because I was working with student orgs. And so the students were on campus at night. The flexibility just wasn't there. And I still see that it's it's not there, which is a concern for me. And I was very, very fortunate to have been teaching and, and thus been able to make that pivot to the faculty space before I then moved to ed tech. But the low of lows for me often in student affairs were more like a lot of the political things, which I felt were often not putting students at the center. And it wasn't usually from within student affairs. It was often, you know, faculty being like, this should have happened this way because it's best for me and it's not always best for students. And that was the stuff that I would take home with me and I would be just really, really angry and frustrated. And I met a Jason, so I still see those things, but they have a very different impact in my day to day. And also, you know, along with that came this like, sometimes explicit, but often implicit thing that you had to, you were like, you know, student affairs was the stepchildren of the university. And you always had to acquiesce to other folks, especially faculty. And I feel like that really often like didn't allow me to be my authentic self and working in corporate. I feel much more empowered to practice radical candor because we're all here trying to do the absolute best we can because the, our clients expect that of us, which is great because then we're, we're all working together to that excellence. And I'll just say that on the other side, the low part is, I mean, okay, Tom, yeah, we don't go to the pancake breakfast and we don't have students calling us and, you know, and truthfully, right? Like I loved, I oversaw orientation as well for three years and I was a hall director for three years. Like that synergy and that feeling that you get, you know, it literally cannot be replaced. I've had to really come to terms. Like I've, I've had to take the feeling out of it and just come to terms with the fact that like, these are the benefits of how this works f- far better for me in, you know, all of the things. And this is just a downside. And I'm trying, you know, in other ways to get fulfillment in mentoring others and that synergy. But, you know, even today, Tom and I will step on a college campus and be, you know, I know we both have those moments where we're like, this is where we belong. And then it's like, well, kind of not anymore. But, you know, and that's, that's part of, you know, we had a person on our season two, talking about how it's like, leaving a religion. And it it kind of is in all ways, because you really believe in it. So that's the downside is that we're not kind of part of it. And for me, 
I'm, I'm going to stop. I feel like I've been on a tangent, but I'll just say for me, it was tough because I went from being on like the NASA faculty council, feeling like a real integrated part of the profession to the next day, I got a different job and couldn't, couldn't serve in a leadership position within NASPA. So there's definitely like some identity things I had to deal with. You mentioned something that I want our listeners to hear uh, for both shows. There's a podcast called Radical Candor, which is also a book, which is a management style that I really appreciate and embrace as well, which is about honesty, authenticity, kind of addresses some of the shadow sides to management. So if that's not something that you have gone through yet, it's only like 20 or 30 episodes. It's a real short series of shows. Totally worth it, in my opinion. Agreed. It's great. You know, Jill, what's interesting to me and when, when Jamie brought it up is sort of that authentic self. And I was sort of conditioned that that while I was good at the work that I did in student affairs, I don't think I ever really belonged. And I go back to a very pivotal moment when I was uh, a first year student affairs person right out of undergrad and everybody did the MBTI. I, that was like the thing that all staffs did at the time. And I tested as um, ISTJ and I'm pretty solid on each one of those four letters. And I remember the presenter saying, oh, that's interesting, Tom, because the student affairs sort of four letter combination is ENFP, which is the exact opposite to what I was. And I remember thinking- That's what I am, oh, I'm just for the record. <laughs> INTJ, so I got you, Tom. Yeah. yeah, and so I remember thinking, Okay, this may be why, you know, I'm a type A personality. I'm, and I think it's probably why I found my way into orientation programming because I think orientation people tend to need to be type A. They tend to need to be very detail oriented. I was a great event planner. And what I wasn't great at are, and, you know, my poor students, I was never really great at the feeling part. You know, I'd have students in my office and they would start crying because I was getting ready to expel them. And I would pass over the tissues and it was like, let me know when you're done. And I know that that sounds horrible, but it's because that's not who I was. And so what I found in moving into this corporate world is that I can be that detail-oriented type A personality and not have to really apologize for it. And it's definitely, there's an authenticity that I'm able to bring to the role. And I certainly, I certainly appreciate that capability. Yeah. And I think that's a good segue of something that I've been thinking about that I wanted, I was curious your thoughts, Jill. So Tom mentioned very early on, he was like unsure about his fit. And we have a fair amount of people who reach out to us. And then we'll pop into the expatriates of student affairs Facebook group fairly regularly. And there's a fair amount of new professionals in there that are very committed to leaving. And I personally differ my advice a little depending on where they are in the profession. But I'm curious from your perspective, what advice do you have for listeners who are trying to decide if they want to leave the profession? And, and from your perspective, does it matter what their experience level is? Would your advice differ if someone's a new professional and like maybe in their first professional position? It's a really interesting question because something I think about a lot. I've worked with new professionals who have pivoted completely into different fields. Um, so for example, I had a hall director on staff uh, last year, year before last, who made a complete life shift and decided to go back and get a master's in counseling and is now working to establish the one of the very first transgender mental health care facilities down in Southern California. And it's absolutely her calling. And so for her, I think she discovered that as she was working with students and uh, really made that transition.
transition because she found purpose there. And so my advice for her would have been, you know, follow the purpose, follow where your heart is calling you. And I think that really matters. I also had another brand new professional transition um, just to another institution that was kind of more where their hometown was and where their family was. And so it was not that they were necessarily not thriving in their work where I was at with them. It was more that they just needed to be in a place where they could thrive and see their family on nights and weekends. And so sometimes I go, you know, is it a question of the job that you're in, the institution you're at, or the environment that you want to be in? College towns are not for everybody, especially for historically excluded individuals. I live in a very small community now. It's the smallest place I've ever lived in my whole life. And I learned by accident that apparently I define civilization as a target at Chipotle in an airport. And if you have those three things, you live in civilization. My community is getting a target in the fall. Very grateful for that. And we got a Chipotle last year. So yay! I'm very excited. Um, but in terms of, you know, I, I don't think it's ever too late to make a change in your life. And I'm sitting at the associate vice president and dean level. I intentionally did my doctorate in public administration, not in higher ed, to keep my options open. I could work at a 501c3. I could move towards a public administration or policy advocacy organization. I could move to the federal government. Um, if I put enough effort into that, um, getting a job in the federal government is a whole other conversation. But I think it's important because the profession evolves. The profession is breathing. That's actually why I went into this field in the first place is because my partner will tell you my favorite thing is variety. <laughs> and that's uh, exactly what this profession and my day-to-day -day brings me. And that's what keeps me going. Uh, I'm not great with uh, the kind of rote way of being in a day even. And so whatever that variety means to me could also continue to change. And as our students evolve, as the profession evolves, as the way we work with our professionals evolves, I don't see myself ever telling someone the advice of, well, you know, just stick it out. If someone wants to make a change, they should make a change. So first, Jill, I have to comment on your, how you define civilization, because I will never forget when I was interviewing for graduate school, I did my undergrad at Arizona State, and I was interviewing at a school in Ohio to remain nameless, but I was interviewing for essentially a, like an assistant first year hall director, and that included some advising responsibilities as well. And I loved the school. The school was amazing. The graduate program was amazing. But when I got in the car, at the airport, which was not anywhere near close to the campus, the director of housing said, we are really excited. Our Walmart just opened. And I thought, go ahead and turn the car around and take me back to the airport because this is not going to work if you're excited about a Walmart opening. And so I hear you when you talk about the sort of the definition of civilization. Says the man who chose to move to Washington, D.C. out of any state that he could be in. So clearly that That's indicates what, what you like in the town. <laughs> that is true. That is very true. NYU. I lived in Brooklyn for five years. And so from Brooklyn to Pullman, it's a little bit of a little different. different. Little different. Yes, <laughs> very much so. And I, I hear you. I, I used to live in Washington. Washington State. I lived in Vancouver, which was the smallest of all cities. And for those listening, it is not Vancouver, British Columbia. As some of my friends tend to think that I, I left the country. No, no, no. It was Vancouver, Washington, which is very small. But Jill, I, I did want to follow up on that. And, you know, one of the things that I see in those comments from new professionals, some of it's cultural fit, some of it's this isn't what I thought it was going to be. But so much of it is, and I don't even know how to describe it, is that the feeling of not being responsible the feeling of being maybe even sort of belittled, the feeling of not feeling like they're treated as professionals. And 
you know, I never felt that. I guess I was lucky in, in sort of that extent. But I, I guess I'm wondering if you could sort of comment on that since you're in the circles of student affairs. Like, is that something that is really pervasive? Is that something that's being talked about? Because I do have concern when I see people talking about my supervisor, you know, documented me for being two minutes late, even though I was on call last night. And I think, oh, my Lord, that's no, something I never saw happen. And I don't know if that's something that's happening more and more now, if it's pandemic related or if it's just the culture's changing. So that's not my experience with the culture. And I I believe and I hope that it's not my staff's experience with our culture here. But, you know, I can only speak to the experiences that I've been a part of. I also think that online forums tend to only bring out the extremes of the bell curve, yes. right? You only hear of the really, really horrible experiences. And sometimes you hear of the really, really amazing ones. But the middle two standard deviations are not often appearing in these spaces. So I think that's really critical to keep in mind. I think bad managers are everywhere in every industry and every profession. And so I wonder if that's part of it. I also think that as student affairs, we do a pretty terrible job of preparing leaders to become managers. We often say you're a superstar at maybe it is, as you mentioned, Tom, event planning. Great. You're ready to lead other event planners now. Well, are you? Uh, Do you know how to delegate? Do you know how to project manage? Do you know how to work through these things? And have we taken our time and our due diligence to teach you how to do that? Probably not. And the same thing for even growing on the academic side. Well, excellent. You are now an expert in Victorian literature. Does that mean you know how to teach it? Did we teach you how to teach that? We probably didn't. And I think that's a huge gap in higher education overall. And I think a lot of the challenges about supervision could be solved by teaching supervision skills. Uh, We don't do that in master's programs. We certainly don't do that in any sort of cohesive way throughout the profession. So the long and the short of that is, no, I don't think it's as pervasive as it appears online. Mm. But I do believe every story that I see posted in that group, too. Of course. So that's, I think, an interesting time. I do appreciate that you talked about sort of the, the supervision because that's not something that is just higher ed. Yeah. That is something that is pervasive, I think, across industries. I know even at the company I work for, that is something that we talk a lot about is how are we preparing our frontline managers, mm-hmm. our next level managers. And one of the very first things I was asked to do when I started at the company I'm at now was a middle manager's academy. The struggle with that was those people had already been promoted by the time they got into that academy. And we weren't doing things sort of downstream to prepare people for that step up. We're sort of instituting that now, but it's something that I wonder, because again, every position I've ever applied for since the very first one was supervision required, supervision experience required, but we don't do a good job of getting folks that experience. It makes me wonder if we could do a better job of building that into our curriculum, whether it's at the undergraduate or graduate level. It feels like that's a miss from a societal perspective because human relations is sort of like 90% of what I do in my job now, you know, sort of managing people. Yeah. I I mean, I'll add in too that I mean, truthfully, when I'm working with new professionals, I often encourage them to consider, is it the environment? You know, because I think a lot of times, like you, you join this profession for a reason, make an informed decision, which maybe you haven't gathered enough information in this one role. I mean, your examples though, Jill, were great as far as like, if you're following your purpose, that's one thing. But if the issue is environmental, you know, think about trying other things. Cause I do think it's tricky to get back into the profession because you're going to be competing against other people who have stayed in quite frankly, which is why I think for senior leaders, it's a little bit different. You've established yourself in the profession. So if you want to go back, I think it, you know, you've already got that like long track record, but 
I wanted to stay on this point of preparation. We talked about management preparation and, you know, we talked about ed tech and I feel like we should discuss, should we prepare our new professionals for positions that may not be campus-based. You know, we did call our podcast Pivoting Out of EDU because it sounded cute, but really I think of it as Pivoting Out of Campus-Based EDU because I don't know that I ever see myself wanting to work outside of something that isn't contributing to K-16. We'll see. You never know. But what do we think our professional associations and our grad prep programs should do with regard to educating folks in these other opportunities? That's a great question, Jamie. And as I ponder through that, a quote comes to mind from a good colleague of mine. A shout out to Marcus Langford, who's the dean of students at the University of Oregon. Love me some Marcus. Uh, he says, he's fantastic. He often says, I like my job, but I won't love my job because my job will never love me back. And I think that's a critical component for finding joy and resilience in the profession overall. And I think that's part of the prep that we are missing as well, because I think for a lot of student affairs professionals, whole identities, as you mentioned earlier, Jamie, can get wrapped up in I'm a higher ed pro, I'm an SA pro. And that component of missing prep, I also think contributes to, you know, this array of other education related fields. Because if I'm thinking about liking my job and finding purpose, but not tying my entire identity to a job, well, that makes student affairs an option rather than the option, if that makes sense. And so in thinking about, you know, what you both are doing, having pivoted out of campus-based education, but still staying in education, Part of the prep, too, is I'm a pretty seasoned student affairs professional at this point. I don't actually know the landscape at all of the worlds that you are occupying now. And I think a lot of people would benefit from knowing that education does not have to mean I'm sitting in a classroom or that I'm occupying a campus desk. It's funny, Jill, because I wasn't quite a dean of students. I was an assistant dean when I left and I didn't know the world either. And I figured it out really quickly. So my advice for anybody is, you know, no matter where you are, you could be, I mean, we have folks that are lined up this season as former associate VPs and VPs who've pivoted. And it is an interesting pivot, right? It is, is an interesting transition, sort of understanding the landscape beyond sort of higher ed. We've talked a lot about on our podcast, sort of the sense of identity that you have that's wrapped up in being a campus-based professional. I talk a lot about that. The one thing I do miss is the buzz of a college campus, which I call a hubbub of a college campus. And Jamie makes fun of me for that. I definitely but... make fun of him for that. <laughs> do you have hubbub there, Jill, even though Target's not there yet? That's an important question. We, would, we wouldn't call it hubbub. But, you know, it just I think of like, I just think of like hub and bub. I don't know. I'm from the south. The buzz of like people walking (laughs) around and stuff. Like, but I'm from Texas. We have our own own version of, of language. Pivoting out of EDU. We'll be right back after this quick message. Coaching Through It is a podcast hosted by myself, Laura Pasquini and Julie Larson. We're two former higher education professionals who made the jump to corporate life and now are learning what professional coaching is all about. Coaching Through It will offer you 
and explain what coaching actually is and how it might help your pivot out of EDU and support your career transition. We'll be digging into coaching tools, techniques, and resources that we find useful. Not only will you get these tools, but you'll find out what's useful for you and where you're at in your career. We're both career coaches and support transitions and pivots, and we have a number of other coaches you might want to learn from as we feature them on interviews on the pod. And let's get real, we've been friends for over a decade, so you might just hear an episode or two of us coaching one another. And a bit of real talk of what it's like to be in the world of work and how transitions and pivots happen today. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, as we'll be coaching through it. And now, back to the show. The transition at first is scary, but figure it out relatively quickly, particularly, you know, one of the things that I found that I did when I first started was rather than sort of trying to completely pivot my mind over to, you know, this new firm that I'm in, but I tried to make the correlation. So, you know, great example is we use Salesforce and we have customers and we have accounts and we have users and how that's, and we have leads and all that stored in our CRM. And I started thinking like, okay, a lead is a prospect, a prospective student and the end user is the student and the account is the family. And I started like making the connection between what I had done and what I was getting ready to do so that I could figure out how to talk about it and have it make sense in my brain, which seemed to work pretty well. But to get back to your question, Jamie, about sort of professional associations and graduate prep, one of the things that I was really thankful for is that my master's wasn't in higher ed or student affairs. My master's was in leadership. And the first five core courses had nothing to do with education. It was leadership theory and leadership development. And I always go back to that as I probably knew back then that I didn't want to stay in higher ed, you know, for the rest of my life or in in a campus-based position for the rest of my life, because I love sort of the leadership aspect of things. But I think going through that program helped me be better at being a leader, being a manager, being someone who can be a supervisor, because it taught me things that I don't necessarily know if every sort of student affairs program, preparation program gets you. And I wonder if we're missing some of that in sort of how we're preparing the next generation of campus-based professionals and particularly student affairs people. Yeah. I mean, I think both of you make really good points about, you know, the degree path you choose and the like. And for myself, I taught and occasionally still teach when it's not pandemic and I have my children at home, folks actually getting their master's in higher ed and student affairs. And I've obviously also been pretty involved in the profession. And I would like to see there being a more broad lens that we have when we define student success professionals or student affairs professionals. I think we're going to do our entire profession uh, a service if we in the programs say, okay, well, do you work better in a campus-based position or not? And okay, let's help you get there. Just like we do, do you want to do res life or academic advising, but start including other kind of opportunities, which there needs to be obviously education around for for faculty even to be able to, to guide in that way. And then likewise, I'd love to see our professional associations embrace, not that I think that there's a negative, actually, I do think there's a negativity. In fact, I applied to present at NASPA and literally it may have been ACPA as well, but like 90% of my proposals were always accepted until I left a campus-based position and now it's 25%. And someone literally wrote in there, 
I would have given this a recommendation for it to be accepted if it was included with a campus partner. Because there's like a sort of mistrust, I think. Mm -hmm. And I get it years ago, I used to think like those are vendors and salespeople, but things have changed. And I think that if there could be a more embracing of different avenues with which we're all coming together to support student success, I, I think it would help professionals as well. And it would be forward thinking which I will give kudos to NASPA. I sort of was on a bandwagon about online learning as well. And like I went to NASPA and there was only one NASPA session two years ago that, or not one, there was 10 out of like 500 or something that focused on online learning. And I chatted with Kevin Kruger about that. And next, the fall after that, I was included among about 10, 15 other people to discuss the future of online learning and student support. So, and we've, I've seen a lot of commitment in that area. And this was before the pandemic. So I'd love to see the same sort of forward thinking when it comes to our professionals. Yeah, I'll quote another colleague, uh, Beth Devonshire, who is also kind of slightly adjacent to higher ed now used to be campus based, but she likes to say that the grass is greener where you water it. And so when we think about whether we are campus based professionals or whether our purpose is found in corporate that's adjacent, I think the core purpose for all of us is making sure that students get the education that they need and the life skills that they need so that they can become contributing members of a functioning society in theory or have soft skills and self-efficacy and self-advocacy to get there. So you make an interesting point around, you know, where can the higher ed profession in general benefit from some of those outside perspectives? And, you know, the the profession is a little bit of a bubble in terms of the development that comes in and goes out. So I think that's a really, really fascinating thing to consider for what that can mean for future presentations or papers or a number of things. <laughs> so you both have doctorates. You've both taken that skill set and of being a researcher and just moved it um, next door, really. Well, and what's interesting there, Jill, is there's particularly after I think 2008, right, when we had the last sort of major economic shift and issue, you know, we see more and more of sort of the questioning of higher ed from corporate, from government, you know, like what's the purpose? What's it, what's it set out to do? I see more and more posts about college isn't for everyone and college, you know, you don't have to have a degree and is, is it, is sort of quote unquote, is college really worth it? And of course I'm always on that. No, college is absolutely worth it because it's more than just what you learn in the classroom. I think based on the background that I have, but the time has become now for sort of how does, and I think it's actually overdue for how does the world of work, you know, corporate, whatever you want to call that, how do they do better partnerships with, with higher education? Because as you talk about, Jill, you know, preparing students for society, well, you're preparing them to come to places like where I work. Like there's a very small percentage that are going to go back into, you know, student affairs and higher ed. And so as somebody who hires a lot of the folks that you all are preparing for that next level, the more sort of seamless conversations that can happen between the two, the better which is why I love hiring former higher ed folks and why I love seeing my folks go into higher ed because there is that sort of cross-pollination that can happen. But, you know, when I worked in higher ed, I didn't believe it. I was like, nope, we are, you know, we've got our ivory tower and we've got our walls and this is sort of where we, we're the elite. And now that I work on the other side of the fence, I'm like, ugh, okay, no, like that fence has to come down because we have to work together to prepare people for that next level of society. And that society is 
is us on this side of the fence. So I definitely appreciate that sort of call out there. And I believe in higher education. That's why I do this work. I believe in the power of what we can do, particularly at the community college space and the professional school space. There's a lot of room for people to grow their skill sets through education and to try different ways of thinking. Critical thinking is a really important skill that I think is learned in a collegiate environment. And, you know, I, I want our talented student affairs professionals to stay in the field and also knowing that that is not for everyone. Otherwise, your show wouldn't yeah. have down <laughs> the roots that it has, right? Uh, or the Facebook group wouldn't have grown the way that it has. So I think it's important to acknowledge all sides of this reality. But again, hoping to retain as many talented people as we can for this field. So I'd love to know, what do you think the number one thing that higher education should be doing right now to retain our professionals better would be? I would use one word, and that's flexibility. I think we need to move outside of this idea that the universities function on a nine to five face to face time period. Students are on campus morning, noon and night, and many of them want, especially post pandemic, to be able to be fluid and flexible in how they take classes online and on ground. So we need to be, you know, envisioning a very agile student experience. And thus, we need to have our staff be able to meet that demand. And I I mean, and I, I know I was kind of kind of quoted in the Chronicle around this, but, you know, I, like, I just don't really understand how universities can allow staff or can create an environment where it's like, OK, the pandemic has started. You can work from home because we need you to and you can work these flexible hours because we need you to. But then the pandemic's quote unquote over and it's like, well, Maybe you can work from home, but we need a committee to get together to make a vote on it and decide if we can change that policy. That all sends messages to people that is like, we didn't initially value this enough to figure it out before we got to this place. But at any rate, most of the people I talk with, and maybe they gravitate toward me because I'm like a working mom, but most of them, they just want to better integrate their life into work. They love what they do. But, you know, they just want a little bit, bit of flexibility with it. And some places I've seen, some higher ed places have accommodated it, but I think many just, they haven't. They're rooted in how things have always been. And there are many other challenges I think that universities need to deal with, but that's a key one. Yeah. And I think from my perspective, and I'm probably going to get a lot of applause from your listeners, Jill, is... I think higher ed needs to pay more. Like, just quite up, frankly, I <laughs> think minute. higher ed needs to pay more. I don't for flexibility um, <laughs> and working from home. <laughs> I do agree with the pay more thing, though. That All is the thing. legitimately, I do. I'll well, snap you, that, too. <laughs> you know, I think I've hired probably 10 former higher ed professionals, and every single one of them that I hire, I remind them, I'm hiring you for an entry-level position at my company, even though you're a director of orientation or you're a director of fill-in-the-blank, I've hired now two directors of housing, I'm still going to pay you more in that entry-level position than you make in your director position that likely requires a master's and or even a, a terminal degree. And if we want to have really good professionals and we want the profession of student affairs to be a true professional profession, we got to pay more. 
it's not even optional anymore. And I think particularly as Generation Z, well, we finish up millennial and move to Generation Z, I'm not going to stand for it. The salary disparity is massive between higher ed and at least in the in the area that I'm in. And, and I wouldn't even say that we pay exponentially great. We pay sort of market rate and it's still much higher than anybody that I've ever brought in from higher ed. Yeah, I want to respond to both those thoughts a little bit because I struggle with both of those things all the time. On the salary component, as a state agency, we have far less flexibility than I think people think. And it's something that we push against and fight against all the time. Because I, you know, I believe a lot of my team deserves far more compensation than what they get. And then when we talk about those things, the pushback is always, well, this is market rate. But if the whole market is depressed, then that's not helpful. Then everyone is just not earning what they're worth. It's such a frustrating cycle because if we want great talent, we need to pay what that talent can earn in and out of the market. And then I also can't get a lot of movement in that space because the market doesn't reflect it. So I don't know how to break that vicious cycle a lot of the times. Yeah. The other thing on the flexibility side component, that's also been an interesting thing that we've been wrestling with since our campus came back into person. And one of the things I think about often is how do I offer flexibility, but then also have a person in the office if a student comes in and and discloses that they've experienced something really horrible or they're in crisis. I need a person there to talk with that student and sit with that student. And so it's just, it's this really interesting space where we're trying to say, well, maybe what if we looked at, you know, one day a week mm-hmm. from home, or what if we looked at mornings or afternoons, or, you know, how does that flexibility bake in at the same time centering students? Because we ha- we still have to center students. And then finally on the equity piece, which is who gets to work from home and why? And, you know, we can't offer that same type of flexibility to a dining worker who physically will be cooking food because the food needs to be placed on the table for the student or the custodial worker whose job physically cannot be done from home. And so I also think about the tension and the challenge of creating an accidental class system within our own profession. So that's just kind of where I sit with it. And I'm still figuring it out and also trying to offer uh, the team that I work with as much flexibility as I can, which is, it's a tough tension. Yeah. Yeah. I think if you had the answer, Jill, you would probably be a millionaire writing lots and lots of books about how to fix the system. Because I think <laughs> it, it is, is a, it is a, a systemic yeah. issue that is not just in education. It's pervasive across multiple types of industries. Yeah. And trust, I would have done it already. <laughs> but many companies are figuring it out, getting creative, leveraging data on like, you know, performance and foot traffic, et cetera, to then make it work for everybody. And they're figuring it out. Universities, I think, need to as well. Absolutely. I agree with you. But it is lightning round time. Uh, Jamie and Tom, we have seven questions and 90 <laughs> seconds. We'll start with well, question one, then Jamie, then Tom, and then question okay. two, and Jamie, then Tom, etc. Question one, if you were a conference keynote speaker, what would your entrance music be? I will survive. Something from NSYNC. Bye, bye, bye for Tom. Question two, when you were... <laughs> <laughs> but it's an entrance piece. I know that's I love it. <laughs> <laughs> number two when you were five years old what did you want to be when you grew up a uh, music teacher a teacher number three who's your most influential professional mentor I would say for me gosh I've got multiple I gotta be fast I'll say Melora Sunt my current supervisor not just because she's my current supervisor but a lot of reasons with regard to leadership Mine is Amy Johnson, who's the current Vice Chancellor for Student Affairs at UNC Chapel Hill. All right. Number four, your favorite author, personal or professional? I know I have a doctorate, but I don't really read very much. 
I watch reality TV. So I'm going to skip. <laughs> and people can't laugh at me for this, but I love me a good John Grisham book. <laughs> you're not the first person to say that on the show. <laughs> good. Number five, your essential higher education or student affairs read. For me, definitely inside higher ed and LinkedIn, truthfully, for the just, I mean, sharing of relevant articles and such. Oh, this is one I'm going to skip because it's been a six years since I read anything higher ed or student affairs related. <laughs> Number six, the podcast you've spent the most hours listening to in the last year. For me, it's the various Harvard Business Review podcasts. They have a whole host of different ones. And I fill a lot of my knowledge gaps that way on the business side. I am addicted to the daily, the New York Times podcast. <laughs> and finally, number seven, any shout outs you want to give personal or professional? A uh, shout out to you, Jill, for reaching out to us, actually. I think Tom and I had a thought that, you know, ahead of time, there would be a desire to like, for NASPA to sort of not be interested in encouraging folks to think about a pivot. And so I think it was a brave thing to reach out. And I think that this has been a, a good conversation. I mean, want to emphasize, we haven't been wanting to encourage people to leave. We just want to make sure that if people want to leverage their skills and experience elsewhere, they know what that path could look like. And I think you saw that. And this is going to be great for folks, I think, that are, you know, making those considerations. So that's my shout out to you. And Tom for doing this fun stuff with me mm -hmm. and letting me give him crap when he <laughs> says things like hubbub and does the full dance to bye bye bye. Yes, he can. Yes, he can. <laughs> Well, I will dish it right back and, and just repeat that Jamie doesn't quite understand what a lightning round is about, but, um, <laughs> but I will give shout out to all of my former students who have gone into student affairs and are keeping up the tradition and making sure that they're giving back to their institutions, wherever That's they are. Awesome. I agree. I agree. Thank you so much. You survived the lightning round. It's been such a pleasure to have you on SA Voices. Thank you so much, Jamie and Tom, for sharing Thank your you. voices. Thank you for having us. Well, and to all of our listeners on the Pivoting Out of EDU side, very thankful to all of you for participating and listening to our podcast today. Thank you to Jill uh, for joining us from the NASPA side. Always great to have our colleagues from our campus-based positions represent themselves to our listeners as well. So we really appreciate the opportunity. Again, for those who are listening, make sure that you check us out at pivotingoutofedu.com. And don't hesitate to contact us at pivotingoutofedu at gmail.com if you have questions, concerns, or just want some free consultative advice. Thank you for listening to Pivoting Out of EDU. For show notes and more information about the podcast, visit pivotingoutofedu.com. If you're thinking about pursuing an opportunity outside of your campus-based position or know someone who is, visit our website for advice and resources and learn Jamie and Tom's private consultations offered to support you in your journey. If you think this podcast was awesome, please consider giving us a five-star rating.